morning, Kessid. Hello. Wow, thank you guys. Um, before we do anything else, I would like to open us with a word of prayer as we open the word. So if you guys would join me as we pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of coming together, Lord, um, to gather as one body um, united under the name of Jesus. Thank you for giving us your word, Lord, to reveal yourself to us. As we prepare our hearts to study your word today, would you do what only you can do, Lord? Would you take this one word, divide it up, multiply it, distribute it to each of us in the way that only you can to reveal yourself to us? And Lord, would you show us more of who we are in the process too? It is in your son's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm so glad to be back with you guys. My name is Lindsay Ponder. Um, it's been a couple months since I was last here at Kessid, and when I realized that it had been two months, um, I was shocked as I was preparing for this. I've heard a lot of people say that COVID and the changes it has wrought upon our society feels like it has uh, changed the way that we perceive and experience time, and I feel like that's true. I feel like time just seems like it's moving differently. Like every day feels like it drags on at a snail's pace, but then you look over your shoulder and where did the last two weeks go? And suddenly we're in the middle of October. And I feel less and less aware of time. Not that I ever was that aware. I'm usually late to things. Um, but I barely noticed when October started until at the very end of September, I had a friend from college staying with me who is hyper aware of the month of October. It's um, her favorite month because she lives for fall. And don't get me wrong, I love fall too, um, but I love fall for cozy flannels, cozy drinks, cozy fires, cozy cozy. She, my friend Emily, loves fall because it is spooky season. That's what she calls it. She loves scary movies, dressing up in costumes, um, anything that makes her experience terror. And I don't understand. Um, I don't like scary things. I don't really understand why anybody would willingly subject themselves to being scared in life. Like, I don't, it's not enjoyable to me. Um, I did walk through a haunted house with her while she was in town, and I was very proud of myself. Did I make it through by telling myself that kids do this every single year? Yes, I did. <laughs> Still proud of it. Anyway, all that to say, as I was thinking about what we should study today, I thought, what better way to kick off a sermon in the month of October than by telling you all a story of the day the dead rose from their graves and began to roam the earth once more. Just kidding. Except I'm not kidding because our text for today is all about what happens when Jesus shows up at the tomb of a guy who's been dead and buried for four days, and at a word from Jesus, he comes walking out of his grave. Many of you have heard this story. It's the story of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus, which you will find in John 11. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to John 11? And if you don't, um, the verses that we'll look at for today will be on the screen. Now, as we get into our passage, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. First, this is a story about resurrection. 
Now, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, that is because you have chosen to confess your belief in the resurrection. That is, Jesus took on your sin, died in your place, and rose to life. Now, Paul says in Romans 6 that our faith in Jesus is far more than something symbolic. It's far more than something we choose by our willpower or our mental prowess. Rather, our faith in Jesus unites us to his very life. Paul says we are buried with him in the grave and then resurrected to life in him. This is really important because this makes Jesus the resurrected one, and this makes us resurrected ones. We are people of resurrection. Now, we'll unpack what this means at the end of the message, but I want you to keep it in mind because I think resurrection is a word we get tired of. It's a word we think we know, we've heard about it, we know what it is, and ironically, it's a word we only really talk about once a year at Easter time. And I think that's a big problem because the resurrection Death and life in Jesus Christ is what defines us as his followers. There is nothing more defining of you or me than the resurrection. Now, the second thing I want you guys to think about as we dig in is this. And if you have your Bibles open already, jump down in John 11 to verse 21. Lazarus has died. Jesus shows up late. And Lazarus' sister Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the mood that forms the backdrop of our story today. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, Jesus, this would have turned out differently. If you had been here, all this pain and suffering could have been avoided. Jesus, where have you been? Where have you been? I guarantee you, if we're honest with ourselves, we have all asked this question at some point. Jesus, where have you been? So we want to read this story and we want to understand it in the way John the Apostle originally intended it. And at the same time, we want to find ourselves in this story as we go. So whatever came to mind when I said that, where have you been? Keep that in your mind as we go. And see if you can identify with these sisters we'll read about, Mary and Martha. So without further ado, to the text. This is John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Okay, John is giving us some important details right off the bat. First, we have our key players introduced. Lazarus from the town of Bethany and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, it's interesting. Um, John says, you know Mary. She's that girl who anointed the, the Lord's feet with ointment and then wiped it up with her hair. Danny mentioned her a few weeks ago, taught on her. 
And this is funny because in John's Gospel, that hasn't actually happened yet. It happens a chapter later in John 12. It's almost like John is assuming we will read our Bibles and then reread them enough times that we're so familiar with them we know what's coming next. I'm just saying. Um, now, there are a few more things to note here, which is, um, first, the sisters know Jesus loves them and their brother. Jesus is apparently a close enough friend that they send a messenger to him to tell him that Lazarus is sick. That seems obvious, but what's maybe not so obvious is there is an expectation behind their actions. They expect that Jesus loves them so much he will drop everything when he hears this news. Another important thing to note is Jesus just gave us the purpose statement for what's about to happen. This sickness, he says, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. We'll come back to that later, but glory, God's glory, is the end goal here. Would you look at verse 5? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let's read that again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Is this logic working for you guys? Because this logic is not working for me. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so he stayed where he was. He loved them, so he didn't go see them. Now, we could look at this, and we could slap a cliche on it and say, God's ways are not our ways. You know, God's timing is different from ours. This story is so much more than a lesson on God's timing. This is Jesus deliberately choosing to do something that Mary and Martha and certainly Lazarus would never choose for themselves because he loves them. Why? We'll just have to keep reading to find out. After these two extra days of waiting are up, Jesus announces to his disciples in verse 7 that they're headed for Judea again, for the region around Jerusalem. That's where the town of Bethany was. And his disciples argue with him in verse 8, and they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Now, the disciples aren't just stubborn party poopers. They have genuine concerns because the last time that Jesus was in Judea, which was in John 10, the religious leaders from Jerusalem tried to stone him. His disciples are just being practical. If Jesus makes any more waves, and when does Jesus not make waves? He could die. What they don't realize is this is all part of the glory that Jesus is after. So Jesus responds and tells them he's going to go anyway. And in the next few verses, they take off for Judea, for the town of Bethany. In verse 14, Jesus announces, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. I want you to keep track of the word believe throughout this story, because belief is a key theme all through John, and it's particularly key here in John 11. Now, what Jesus says here is important. 
I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there to save Lazarus so that you may believe. What does Jesus want his disciples and us to believe? Look at verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Most commentators I've read are quick to say Martha is not rebuking Jesus. She's just sad. I'm not sure if I see it as that black and white. If I were Martha, I don't know if I'd outright rebuke Jesus, but I'd be pretty upset with him. I mean, he knew ahead of time that Lazarus was sick, and she's right. If Jesus had been there, her brother wouldn't be in his grave right now. He could have saved him. And now, there's no hope. He's gone. In fact, in the Jewish imagination, when someone dies, they believe that the spirit of that person lingers and hovers around the body for the next three days. So in some ways, for the first three days after death, the person is still present. That's how they see it. But by the time the fourth day rolls around, the spirit has departed. And so Jesus has effectively waited until Lazarus is good and dead. Which makes Martha's expression in verse 22 really strange. She says, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. We know what's coming next in the story, that Jesus will raise Lazarus from his grave, but it's clear from the verses that come later that Martha is not actually thinking Jesus is going to bring her brother back to life. So what is she saying? She's saying, A, she knows that Jesus can do something that will make this situation better, somehow. And B, she is confessing that she still has faith in Jesus. Just because she's upset with him doesn't mean she's giving up on him. That's powerful. However, Martha's confidence is in what Jesus could have done. What he could have done. She lacks the imagination to envision what he will do. Martha has faith in Jesus, but not faith beyond what she can see or imagine. And you know what? Jesus don't care if you can't imagine it. Jesus is the one who does exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we think or imagine. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Like Christians, Jews believed in, and still believe in, a final resurrection at the end of days. So this statement would not be surprising to Martha. Jesus' words could be just a word of comfort to Martha, like how we say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so glad that you'll see them in heaven. It could be that, and it's clear that Martha takes it that way. She says in the next verse, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Except maybe that's not what Jesus meant. Maybe, like he does so often, 
Jesus has a face value meaning to his words and a secondary meaning only visible when we examine his words through the eyes of faith. Maybe Jesus is telling her exactly what he is about to do. There's a word for some of us here. So I think God tells us what he's going to do more often than we think he does. We just misunderstand what he's saying, or we don't believe him. Jesus' disciples did this all the time. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he would tell his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and then I will be raised again to life. And yet, when he goes to Jerusalem to die, his disciples try to stop him, and then they can't believe that he's dead, and then they definitely don't believe that he's going to rise again. But he told them, and he's done the same thing here. He told his disciples, Lazarus' story doesn't end in his death. He tells Martha, I'm about to resurrect your brother. But because Martha has no thought or expectation that anything could change, she misunderstands what Jesus is saying and who he is. And you know what? We all do this. We set the bar so low for Jesus, we miss what he's doing entirely. And so Jesus clarifies. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, Martha knows she believes in the resurrection someday. But Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection. And I'm right here with you, beside you. I'm life. It's me. Jesus is saying resurrection isn't just some abstract event that happens at the end of time. It's something he's bringing to bear in the lives of his followers now because it's who he is. We'll come back to this at the end. For now, we need to keep moving. So look at verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's response is verbatim what her sister's was. She's brokenhearted. She's angry. She's confused why Jesus didn't show up sooner and prevent this horrible thing from happening. And yet, like her sister, even in her grief and anger, her words are a confession of belief. It is absolutely possible to be heartbroken, grief-stricken, even angry with God, and still choose to believe in his power and goodness. What I really want us to focus on, though, is what happens next. It's Jesus' response, because it reveals something very important about his character. Look at verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? 
They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Verse 35 is so much more powerful than we give it credit for. Jesus wept. We know it famously as the shortest verse in the Bible. John 11:35, Jesus wept. The shortest verse, but it's huge. Jesus sees Mary's tears, and he's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Our English words soften what this is in the Greek. The Greek words for deeply moved conjure an image of a horse snorting and stamping its foot in anger. He's angry. And I've heard Bible teachers over the years say that Jesus is angry because the tears of the Jews indicate their unbelief. But that doesn't make any sense because the very next verse is that Jesus himself weeps. Jesus doesn't get angry with grief. Plus, these people have never experienced a resurrection before. So even if their faith extends to some kind of resurrection at the end of time, why would they expect one now? Sometimes, I think we expect people in the Bible and ourselves to have responses that are not human. Jesus doesn't expect that. He is showing us something fundamental to God's character here. Jesus, God come in the flesh, weeps when he sees Mary crying. What does that mean when you cry, when you experience grief? It means God sees your tears and weeps with you. And there's something else here, too, because Jesus' grief is different from the grief of the mourning Jews. And the onlooking Jews, they don't realize what they're doing, but they hit on something important in the next verses. So look at verse 36. The Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? First, the Jews get it right. They correctly identify that Jesus' grief comes from a place of deep love for Lazarus and his family. But then they get it wrong. They assume Jesus is as helpless as they are. They assume his grief is true despair. To despair is actually a step beyond grief. It means you have given up all hope or expectation of anything ever changing. And I guarantee you, there are people in this room today in despair. Something terrible has happened in your life, and you don't see any way it could possibly change. It's as much a goner as a man so dead he's already buried. The Jews scoff at Jesus. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Their words are full of cynicism. What good is this Jesus guy anyway? But they're wrong. Jesus is not crying from despair. Little do they know, but they are standing in the presence of the word of God who created the cosmos. His heart breaks for his dear friend. His heart breaks when he sees the degradation, the devastation, the sin caused by deception that has wreaked havoc on the beauty of his world and his friends suffer for it. He's heartbroken, but not helpless. Something we need to remember, no matter what you're walking through today, your God is not desperate. Look at verse 38. 
So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Martha's so real. It's going to stink, Jesus. But she does what we all do when Jesus says something we don't like or we don't understand. She reasons according to her logic. She reasons according to what she can see and perceive of the world in front of her. But did you see the the question that Jesus asked her? What did he say? If you believe, you will see. Notice he did not say, if you see, you will believe. There are certain things God wants to do in our lives that we will not see unless we believe him. Now, this is not a magic formula. This does not mean you can will God into action by pulling up the bootstraps of your faith. This does mean if God says something to you, if he tells you to do something, you better do it. And that's the key. We can't believe just anything. You know, we can't live in this false reality of just believing whatever we want to see come up in our lives. We have to believe what God says. We demonstrate our belief in God's words by the choices we make. And we see these people respond in faith because they removed the stone in verse 41. Verse 41 says, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. A man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Jesus just did the unthinkable. Jesus just summoned a man from his grave with a word. Some commentators think if Jesus had not named Lazarus, if he had just shouted, come forth, then all the dead people would have come wandering out of the grave. And this is amazing. You know, he just overturned death, and it wasn't just restarting the heart of a guy who had stopped breathing for a few minutes. He just raised to life a guy who's been in the ground for four days. And people's reactions are totally polarized. Whenever Jesus acts, it forces people to make a decision, to either believe in him or try to get rid of him. There is no neutral posture in the presence of Jesus. You cannot remain on the fence. You cannot choose not to make a decision because not deciding is a decision. And this has always been the case. That's why some of Jesus' listeners believe in him and the others not only don't believe in him, you know, they don't just choose not to believe and then wander off and go on with their lives. They go to the Pharisees. What does that mean? Many of us know the rest of the story. Look at verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? 
for this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Now jump down just a little bit to verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And that, my friends, is the end of this incredible resurrection story. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and we have momentary warm fuzzies. And then the Pharisees determine at this point that they're going to kill Jesus. He's competition. And we know the end of the story, don't we? They do kill him. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus, this is the turning point, the event that convinces the Pharisees death is the only option for Jesus. And the rest of the book is a steady, relentless road toward the cross. And Jesus knew this before he arrived in Bethany. And his disciples suspected it. That's why they were so bent on warning him at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus, don't you remember what happened last time we were in that area? Jesus don't you remember how the religious leaders tried to get you to stop speaking? Tried to stone you, Jesus? Don't you realize what this means for you, Jesus? Of course he realizes. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And Jesus is doing exactly what he has always said. Good leaders, good friends, a good God do for their people. In John chapter 10... He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Just a few chapters later, in John 15, Jesus will say, no one can show greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friend. Do you see this? Jesus goes to Bethany to raise his beloved friend from the dead, knowing it will mean his own death. He is laying down his life, quite literally, for his friend and the sheep. So Lazarus' resurrection becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. So what is he doing? I think the only way we can actually understand any text in the Bible is by asking it questions. The moment we buy into the paradigm that we can't question the scriptures, we miss out on the opportunity to understand them and to understand what God is saying to us about himself. So let's ask some questions. First, remember that before we got started, I asked you to consider the mood of this passage. Martha's question, Jesus, where have you been? I don't know about you, but this story raises a big question for me. Namely, why didn't Jesus just heal Lazarus? Like all this pain and suffering, this death, all this time, all that could have been saved, spared, it all could have been avoided if Jesus had just gotten there sooner. So why didn't he do that? Well, Jesus actually already told us why. Remember? In verses 4 to 6, John tells us Jesus waited to arrive because he loves this family. And then Jesus says to his disciples, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So, he delayed visiting Lazarus because he loved him and for God's glory. Except for me, that's anticlimactic. And I, I don't know about you, but in my mind, so Jesus lets a man, his friend, die 
so that God could show off? So that God could show off his power? Like we really needed all these humans to suffer so that God could show us how shiny and powerful he is? I ask these questions because using the definition of glory that usually comes to our minds, that's where this passage lands us. God let humans suffer and even die so that he could show off by doing a miracle. That's how we think of glory so much of the time. Except that's not how John is defining glory here. Throughout John's gospel, he uses the word glory repeatedly with clear ties to the book of Exodus. That's really significant. Why? Well, it means we need a different definition of glory that comes straight out of the book of Exodus. There's a famous story in Exodus, chapters 33 to 34. Moses asks God to show him his glory, and God says, okay, I'll let you see my back, not my face, and then I'll pass by you. And so God passes in front of Moses, proclaiming his character. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, that's chesed, by the way, and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He proclaims his character. So let's put the puzzle pieces together. God's glory, then, in the way Exodus and John define it, is God's self-revelation. God's glory is him revealing his character to humanity. So the miracle itself is not God's glory. What the miracle reveals about God's character, that is God's glory. So when Jesus says Lazarus' temporary death is for God's glory, he's not saying Lazarus' death is for God to show off. He's saying Lazarus' death and resurrection is so that these people might know something true about God that they might know his character. And knowing his character in this way is somehow the most loving thing Jesus could possibly do for them. More loving than intervening and preventing the suffering from ever happening at all. Let me say that again. Jesus letting Lazarus die and then resurrecting him so that he and his family might know God's character is more loving than preventing the suffering in the first place. So I told you we were going to ask some questions. The first question was, why didn't Jesus just show up sooner and avoid all this pain? The answer is so that we might learn something true about God's character. That means the second question we have to ask is, what does this reveal about God's character? The answer is, So much. It shows us Jesus does care that his motive always be love. It shows us Jesus cares that we express ourselves to him. It shows us Jesus cares about preserving a mutual sharing between us and God. He wants us to share in his miraculous work through our belief and through our obedience to roll away the stone. And he shares in our suffering. It shows us Jesus cares about our grief and even weeps with us. The biggest thing, though, is Jesus don't care if it's dead. Jesus does not care if that part of your life is already dead and buried, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is inviting these sisters in the midst of the death they are currently mourning to see that he is resurrection, which means death is not the end of the story. And Jesus is talking about far more than just a resurrection that happens at the end of time. We say death is not the end of the story, but we live as if that's only coming at the very end of time. And Jesus' question to Mary and Martha is his question to us, do you believe? Because if resurrection is who Jesus is, then we can expect far more than a resurrection at the end of days. We can expect him to be daily resurrecting us. If we believe that, that brings us to our next question, which is, what does this text reveal about us? Well, if Jesus is the resurrection, then we are people of resurrection. That means we are people defined by resurrection, not death. Let me explain. I think we find it very easy to expect death, sometimes to the point of defining ourselves by it. And it's not always the kind of death that came to your mind when we started talking about this passage, the loss of a loved one. It could be that, but it might also be a deep loss of some other kind. For instance, it could be the death of a dream, the disappointment of your expectations, the end of a relationship, the reorientation we have to go through when th something we thought was happening doesn't happen, when the direction we thought our life was headed comes to a halt. We know death, and we expect it. But too often, we let death, grief, and disappointment teach us what to believe about the nature of the world, ourselves, and even God. We get hurt by others, so we believe this is the way the world is. Or we let ourselves down, chasing paths we know we shouldn't, and then we believe this is who I am. And that is the kind of death that teaches us that reality is based on a lie. Nothing will ever change, which makes us people who cope. The world isn't what I dreamed it would be, and so I will make it through life just coping. And I think coping ends up being the best many of us ever do. We grin and bear our ways through life. Coping means I have let evil and suffering teach me what to believe about the world. But what if we let the resurrection teach us what to believe about the world? The resurrection invites us to believe that the world we see isn't actually the truest version of the world. The resurrection means in the death you're facing, whether that be literal physical death or the loss of something so precious to you, you feel like life cannot possibly go on without it. It means death does not get the last word. Resurrection means if all you can see right now are the symptoms of death in your relationships and circumstances, you're looking at the middle of the story. You're looking at a tomb where everything you were counting on is dead and buried, but my friends, that is not the end of the story. If Jesus is who he says he is, the end of your story has to be resurrection, not death. Let me be clear. 
this unfortunately does not mean your loved one is rising from their grave in this lifetime. This does not necessarily mean that relationship is getting restored in this lifetime. It does mean if you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because God will resurrect you. So what is the death you're facing? Has Jesus let something die in your life? Does it feel like Jesus has failed to show up when you expected him to? Then I want to leave you with a few practical ways we can live like people of resurrection. I will warn you, they all rhyme. Um, I'm not usually a rhymey person, but it just happened, and it'll be easier for you to remember, so you're welcome. Number one, in your story, look for God's glory. In your story, look for God's glory. And remember that we are talking about the kind of glory that shows us and others more clearly who God is. You know, Jesus always leaves things better than he found them. I promise you, whatever the death you are walking through, there is a resurrection God has for you that will show you and the people in your life more of who he is. But we have to keep our eyes open for it. And how do we do that? Remember that Jesus told Martha if she believed, she would see. This means when you don't see God's goodness, you must expect to see it. You must expect to see it. Remember that they waited for him to arrive. This is an active, confident expectation against all odds. If you have not yet seen God's glory and goodness come shining through in your life, then you have to keep expecting to see it. Because you will. And in the meantime, you, number two, grieve and believe. Grieve and believe. Whatever the death, the Good Friday, the hopeless Saturday, you are walking through, your response like Mary's and Martha's, is to grieve and believe while you await the arrival of Jesus in your life. Jesus doesn't expect you not to grieve. In fact, as we've already seen, he is surely grieving with you. But don't despair. Believe. Don't give up your hope and your sorrow. Hold your spiritual muscles taut to hold your grief in one hand and your hope in the other. Because remember, Jesus does not care if it's dead. It might look dead to you. It might look like there is no way out. There is no possible way you could imagine a way for this situation to get better. But Jesus' imagination is so much better than yours. And he is not limited by death. Which means, number three, don't cope, hope. Because Jesus' imagination is better than ours, we can be people who hope instead of people who trudge through life just coping. Now, this is not false hope we're talking about. This doesn't mean 
I can set my own expectations on what I want and what I hope for and I can live in this false hope or this imagined reality that everything I want is coming to pass. This is biblical hope that we're talking about. Biblical hope is rooted in the belief that God keeps his promises. But if the resurrection shows us anything, it's that hope trusts God's creativity for how he will fulfill his promises. Clearly, none of Jesus' first disciples thought crucifixion and resurrection were how God would redeem the world. Jesus could have just saved Lazarus from the get-go. Instead, he chose to let him die and then resurrect him. It's all crazy. Like, seriously, by our standards, this is crazy thinking. But it resulted in total restoration for Lazarus and his family and greater glory for God. So if you want to be a person who hopes instead of a person who copes, you have to trust God's imagination. Biblical hope knows that the end of the story for children of God is always joy. If you are a child of God, God will come through with mercy and resurrection for you. He has to. It's who he is. Would you join me by standing and praying as we close? Lord, we thank you again for the gift of your word. Would you do what only you can do and, and take this word deep into our hearts, Lord? Would you form us by this word? Search out the still dead places within us, Lord. The places that we have yet to give over to you. Resurrect those things, Lord. The places that we have allowed ourselves to limp along without hope or expectancy. Reinvigorate us, Lord, so that we might be people who burn hot for your name. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming. We'll see you next week.